evening and welcome uh, to this building which acts as a gathering place for the Lord's people, the church. My name is Callum and I am a member here at Charlotte Chapel. Uh, just a couple of notices for you in case you missed it this morning. Our morning service slots has moved to 10.30 a.m. 10.30 a.m. Uh, and if you are able to, we'd love to have you join us for our prayer meeting starting at 10 a.m. in the Anderson Room beforehand. A great opportunity to prepare your hearts coming to worship God together. And secondly, with the risk of COVID-19 diminishing, we are looking to kickstart teas and coffees after our services again. Uh, this is a great way to prolong our conversations after the services to encourage, challenge, and comfort each other from the truths of God's words, which have just been sung, prayed, and preached. But we need volunteers, we need your help, otherwise this isn't going to happen. So if you're a member here at this church and can hold a teapot or a tea cloth, here is an opportunity to bless your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Andrea Doggart is going to be out in the foyer after the service where you can sign up. But now a moment to recognize the God we are here to worship from Psalm 47. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations, God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the of the God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. This week we have seen and felt the effects of living in a fallen world. We have sinned in our own hearts and have seen the suffering across the world. But there is a king over all the earth who reigns over even the most powerful of nations. And he is to be highly exalted. That's why we're going to sing our first two songs, Christ is mine forevermore and all praise to him. Please stand.
members, John and Claire Easton, are now going to pray and bring God's word to us. Thank you, John. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. 
All praise to him, the God of light, who formed the mountains by his might, yet bends to hear our every prayer with sovereign power and tender care. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you that we can come before you in prayer this evening, for salvation belongs to you. You are our only hope, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our King. We thank you that you have done all that is necessary to save, to sanctify, and to bring to glory sinful men and women like ourselves. For in your great love, you sent your only Son, who lived a perfect life, something we cannot do, and he willingly laid down his life on the cross for us, taking the punishment that our sins deserve, and by his sacrifice, reconciling us to you. We thank you that Jesus rose from the grave and will one day return in judgment to avenge evil and take his loved ones to be with him eternally. Father, we confess our sins before you in the quietness of our hearts. Please forgive us for not following you wholeheartedly, for the times when we have chosen to go our own way and not trusted you. Help us by your indwelling spirit to live lives that are nourished by reading your word and dependent on you in prayer. May we set our sails in the direction of your spirit's leading as we chart our course through life. As it says in Paul's letter to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. As we remember your loving kindness to us, we pray for our brothers and sisters, both in Russia and Ukraine at this time. Lord, would they know your loving protection as you are their shepherd, though they walk through the darkest valley, that they would fear no evil, knowing you are with them to strengthen and comfort them. We pray for an end to violence and peace for that land so that your gospel may go forth. And Lord, as we turn to your word, would you give us ears to hear and a willing spirit to apply it to our lives? For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our reading tonight is from 1 Samuel, chapter 16, and that's on page 287 if you're using the church Bibles. 1 Samuel, chapter 16, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You're to point for me, anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, 
do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the lyre, when the evil spirit comes from God comes on you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine looking man and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul, he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Claire and John. In that passage, we were introduced to the shepherd boy, David. And before Liam Garvey, our pastor, comes to preach, we're going to sing a song based on Psalm 23, attributed to David, the Lord's my shepherd. Please stand.
teach. And uh, why don't you turn to our passage for tonight? That's 1 Samuel chapter 16. Um, we're going to walk through it together. And as, we, as you're turning there, let me uh, lead us in prayer. Uh, Lord, we pray along with the psalmist, may your unfailing love come to us, Lord, your salvation according to your promise, that we may answer anyone who taunts us, for we trust in your word. Never take your word of truth from our mouths, for we have put our hope in your laws. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, life is chock full of choices. Every day we have decisions to make, and those decisions naturally, uh, mechanically, if you like, involve two things, rejection and selection. So when we're standing in front of an open wardrobe, choosing what to wear, we are in a process of rejecting and selecting. Uh, when we're looking at our calendars, choosing what to do, we're in the process of rejecting or selecting. Well, why do we choose the things we choose, whether mundane or deeply meaningful? Uh, why do we reject one thing in favor of another? Well, the Bible has a very honest answer for us when it comes to a question like this, and the answer is desire. We choose on the basis of what we want. And while the mind is certainly involved, our own irrational choices at times prove that very often the heart rules the head. And the problem is with making choices on the basis of what we desire is that we reject God's desire, God's will, often God's wisdom. And I guess what we've seen so far in the book of 1 Samuel is the perfect example of that. It's Israel's choice of a king. In chapters 8 to 15, we've seen Israel ruled by the kind of king that they selected, they chose. In 1 Samuel 8 verse 5 and verse 20, they say, we want a king so that we can be like the other nations. There's desire, there's their selection. 1 Samuel 8, 7 tells us who it is they reject by making the selection they make. It is not you they have rejected, the Lord said to Samuel, but they have rejected me as their king. And despite that, God chose to give them what they wanted. And while God chose Saul, as we read in 10, chapter 10, verse 24, the text is very, very clear and underlining for us. God gave them the king that they wanted. Chapter 8, 18, 8, 22, 12, 13, 12, 19, all reinforce that. But you need only look at the name Saul to see the point that is being made in these chapters. His name means asked for. This is the king that the people, Israel, had asked for. And how's it gone for them? Well, it has been an absolute disaster. And we saw last time just how Saul had rejected the word of the Lord. That's why Samuel had said to him in 1 Samuel 15, 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And even in that tense and dramatic moment when Saul reaches out for Samuel, as Samuel turns away to leave him and rips off a corner of his robe, Samuel says, he's torn the kingdom of Israel from you, Saul, and given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. Well, chapter 16 is then a very significant turning point for us in this book. It's God's my turn moment. It's my turn, he says, to appoint a king. But how will he choose? And how will his king serve? Well, the answer's in the text in front of us. Chapter 16 divides into two clear sections. Therefore, we'll tackle it in two points. Hopefully just as clear. Number one, the Lord has chosen a king that he wants. That's what you see in verses 1 to 13. The Lord has chosen a king that he wants. And like any of our choices, as I've just been mentioning his choice involves the mechanical aspects of rejection and selection. And verses 1 to 10 are just chock full of rejection. Both Saul and Jesse's sons are rejected by God. Verses 1 to 3 tell us that God rejected Saul. Read verse 1 with me. 
the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Now, Samuel knows that God has rejected Saul as, uh, as king, but he's still pained by it. He's mourning. There's no professional detachment when it comes to ministry. Good leaders feel sad when those they've led fail. But what we find in here is the truth that the purposes of God never stall. Uh, disappointment and disobedience can, st- can certainly bring us to a standstill, but God is still working out his plan with forward progression. And that is never not the case, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves. That's why he tells Samuel, stop mourning, grab your coronation kit, and head to Bethlehem and the house of a man called Jesse. Verse 1, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Or literally, in Hebrew, I have seen, or I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel obeys. And he heads off to Bethlehem with a heifer, shrewdly presenting as a worship leader, secretly ready to anoint a new king. Now think about this and imagine this, right? I don't know how you would have acted if you were like one of the elders of Bethlehem. And you saw an old man renowned for bringing down tabernacle corruption, for fearlessly and publicly giving the old king a proper dressing down, and for renowned for hacking Agag to pieces in the last chapter, walking towards your town with a cow. What would you be thinking? I reckon you'd be a little bit scared, just as the elders of Bethlehem were in this case. And totally relieved to know that he's just come to worship, not to deal out any kind of judgment. In fact, he's come and invited the elders of the town, plus Jesse and his sons, to join him for sacrifice. But who will God select? Surprisingly, as Jesse's sons pass in front of Samuel, the answer is no one, not yet. Because verses 4 to 10 tell us that God rejected Jesse's sons, Well, Jesse's son's here present, anyway. And that is a surprise to Samuel. Because uh, verse 6 says, when Jesse and his sons arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, the oldest, and pretty much put the hand on the horn of oil, ready to anoint, thinking, surely the, the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. As he looks at Eliab, he sees, I don't know what it is for you, it's like a Marlon Brando or a Chris Hemsworth or a Denzel Washington standing in front of him. He's made of kingly stuff, clearly, this man. But before Samuel could get to his feet, uh, before actually God even says, no, I've rejected him, he teaches Samuel and us a very important lesson. He teaches Samuel not to see as people see, but to see instead as God sees. How do people see? Well, verse 7 tells us. People look at the outward appearance. We make judgments on people based on height, weight, facial features, and all manner of meaningless, culturally conditioned judgments that overlook the heart. That's Samuel's mistake here. Verse 7, God had said to Samuel, do not consider Eliab's height or appearance, meaning Samuel just has. I mean, Samuel hasn't even spoken to Eliab. He hasn't interviewed him, hasn't asked for any character references, hasn't said, Jesse, how well has he behaved, or any of that. He just sees tall, strong, and thinks, king. But that's surprising. I mean, from the way that Eliab's described, he looks just like Saul. In chapter 9, verse 2, Saul was introduced to us as as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Height is a big thing in these chapters. But look at how Saul turned out. Appearances are definitely deceiving. But let's be careful to understand exactly what we're saying here, what God is saying here. God's not saying tall, dark, and handsome didn't work, so let's look for someone short, blonde, and ugly and see how that goes. He's not saying that appearances don't, uh, he's saying appearances don't matter. 
That's all he's saying. It neither qualifies nor disqualifies. Don't see as people see. Now, I wonder if we judge people by outward appearances like this. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Do you ever find yourself making a very bad first impression and regretting it later? Uh, I've been guilty of this. When I was pastor in St. Andrews, there was a man in the church called David uh, who always sat near the front. And by all outward appearances, he was a homeless tramp. His hair was unkempt. His clothes were dirty, his fingers were yellow with cigarette stains, and he stank of urine. His jumper was patchy with various stains. And I judged him to be a poor soul, not had much of a life, and all manner of condescending things. Until one day when I visited him, he sat on one seat of his three-seater sofa, because the other two seats on the three-seater sofa were literally two foot high with books, theological books, academic books, history books. He had once been a professor of history at St. Andrews University. And as I talked with him, I discovered he was incredibly and fascinatingly bright. I remember feeling a simultaneous sense of wonder and of shame when he started talking about Trinitarian heresies in the patristic period. He told me how a mental breakdown had led to the loss of his job, the loss of his wife, and how he turned to Christ who got him through it. He worshipped Christ with all he had in every way that he could function, and the Lord was pleased to receive it. I cried my eyes out when I baptized him. He was a delight. And I'm so glad, still glad of the lesson God taught me through him. Don't judge by outward appearances. What about you? Do you judge people according to your own eyes? Or according to God's? You know, our culture influences us massively in this area. Social media especially has the power to shape and contort and distort our perspective. And if we let those things, culture, social media, or whatever else, shape our perspective more than the Bible does, we are in big trouble. We'll appoint pastors and elders on the basis of appearance, not qualification, because the world has shaped our view of what leadership looks like. Men will overlook potential marriage partners because they've allowed pornography to shape their view of women. How many men have overlooked serious oaks of righteousness, even here in Charlotte Chapel, because they've fallen for the glamour image of a prostitute, essentially. Or women look at themselves in the mirror and judge their own reflections as worthless because they've allowed real after real of fake Instagram, Instagram models to shape their perspective on body image and worth. It's just fake. Don't do that. It's not true, a true representation. Outward appearance ought to be insignificant to a person changed by the gospel. We need to stop seeing as people see and ask God to help us see the way that he sees. Don't you agree? How does God see? Look with me, verse 7. Put your eyes on 7b. The Lord looks at the heart. He looks beyond the surface, and he sees what's truly inside. And as he sees what's in the heart of people like Eliab, then Abinadab, then Shammah, followed by all, all of Jesse's sons, and rejects them all. Samuel says, nope, the Lord has not chosen these. Well, the Lord drives home the point of his lesson by his selection also. In verses 11 to 13, we see his selection. God chooses an unlikely candidate to lead his people. Now, Samuel's utterly confused at this point. He said, okay, I've been sent to a point and anoint one of Jesse's sons, and Jesse's sons have all been rejected. And he's thinking about it and asks the obvious question. Are you sure you've brought everybody? Are these all the sons that you have? 
Uh, well, it turns out there is one more. And how is he described? Well, he's described as the youngest. Uh, insignificant, in a sense. I didn't think you'd want a kid running around, you might hear Jesse say. And he is a, sh a shepherd. You can imagine that he's with the sheep, said with a little sense of embarrassment. Because shepherding was the job of hired men, not an Israelite. Jesse probably winced at this admission. Ah, oh, it's a wee insignificant embarrassment. Yeah, he's, he's with the sheep. And based on all that's been said, God is clearly not making his choice based on what people see. David himself has been rejected by his own dad in regards to what is, well, it's probably the most important um, meal that Jesse and his sons would ever sit down to have. It's Samuel the prophet. But the Lord looks in the heart and in this young shepherd sees one after his own heart. And verses 11 and 12 tells that God chose him, this insignificant shepherd boy, as king. It must have been absolutely unbelievable to those who were there. Even odd for David. I mean, then he comes straight from tending the sheep, probably stinking. Samuel claps eyes on him. And verse 12, he sees one glowing with health, a fine appearance, and handsome features. Now, you're immediately thinking, aren't you? That's surprising. I thought God just said that we don't look at outward appearances. So why describe his outward appearance? Here's why. I think it's to draw attention to his youth. His childishness. Not his buffness. He's not described in terms that make you go, Whoa, don't ever do that. But in terms that make you go, oh, he's so cute. Like he's adorable. He's a boy. And then God said to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Then verse 13 tells us clearly that the spirit of God confirms the choice that Samuel has made. It is truly God's choice. When the verse 13, Samuel anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon. And here's the first time you even hear his name. David. God was making the starkest of contrasts between the way that people see and the way that he sees and between the king that Israel chose and the king that he has chosen. Friends, the same statement anointing was made when God chose King David's greatest descendant to be king, Jesus Christ. Born in the squalor of Bethlehem, native to obscurity in Nazareth, he was no pinup. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 verse 2, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And as you can see from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, people judged him by outward appearances. His fellow Nazarene said, this is just a carpenter's son. Who's this guy? Others elsewhere sneered, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. People rejected him. Like a stone by some builder, as something that's just not going to fit. But he was the Lord's anointed, the capstone of the Lord's eternal plan to save his loved ones for forever. And he was anointed himself, declared to be king at his baptism. See it as a coronation ceremony. Because he was anointed not with oil, but with water and when he was the spirit of God came upon him and from heaven God the father gladly declared what he thought of his own selection this is my son he said whom I love with him I am well pleased Jesus is the man truly after God's heart truly serving in the power of the spirit truly obedient Jesus is truly the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, procuring their salvation. You know, we look for salvation among things and even among people of this world. But with the way we see, the perspective we, has, we have, we can't help but see when we look at a passage like this that our perspective is dodgy. It is skewed. We need to see with new eyes 
eyes given to us by the Lord to see the Savior God selects, Jesus, the Son of God, and bow to him. Have you? If you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. You wouldn't say, I believe Jesus died for my sins and has given me the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. I'd love for you to chat with the person that brought you or with me at the door afterwards about this. Uh, even if you don't want to chat, if you would like to find out more, you just need to come up to me and say, can I get a book, please? And I would love to put a book in your hands that will help you think critically. Well, Jesus is one that serves humbly in the power of the Spirit. And that is exactly what David did. Uh, that's what makes him, and in this passage, a wonderful foreshadowing of Jesus Christ himself. And this is point two, as we look at verses 14 to 23. This is the king who serves humbly in the power of the Spirit. Now, how much time has passed between David's anointing and this first act of Spirit-filled service is unclear. Uh, what we do know, though, from verses 14 to 23 is that his, David's, spirit-filled ministry brings peace. And I think that's a key thing that's brought out in this section. Because in verse 14, it tells us that there's an, the outgoing king, Saul, who's still at this point on the throne, was definitely not at peace. And there are two reasons why. The spirit of God departed from Saul. That's what it says in verse 14. Um, now, it's important to recognize that the Holy Spirit didn't indwell every single person of faith under the old covenant. He filled and empowered prophets, priests, and kings, and others specifically at specific times of his own choosing for particular purposes. His presence wasn't something that was permanent either, not like it is under the new covenant. Uh, he could leave those who rejected God, as Saul had. But the second reason that Saul had no peace was because, when you see also in verse 14, the Lord had sent an evil spirit. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why on earth would he do that? Well, firstly, let me say he can. He is sovereign over all things, even evil. Though he is not the author of it, he is so mighty and sovereign and wise that he can utilize it for his purposes. Why he did that in Saul's particular situation it's actually not, we're not told. The text doesn't say. While we can speculate, it's most likely to be either a disciplinary thing or in God's sovereignty, a positioning thing. So if it's a disciplinary thing, it's because of the way that Saul has behaved, as we've seen in recent weeks, for his arrogance and rebellion, his defiance of God. And if it is discipline, it's good because discipline restrains dangerous sins like those but if it's a positional thing then perhaps it simply is to maneuver David the future king into Saul's courts because David and Saul are going to have quite a relationship as we'll see in coming weeks in any case the spirit is tormenting Saul he doesn't have peace not all the time but when it happens he's not at peace now, before I move on to explain what happens next, I do want to say I don't want anyone struggling with mental illness to read into this something that isn't there. It's very, very clear that we're not meant to look at this passage and read this little bit of text and interpret it from a psychiatric point of view, but from a theological point of view. The thing that we're explicitly told in this passage is the cause of it. It is namely what God took away from Saul and what he sent. Don't read more into the text than what is there or take out from it what isn't. Simply in verses 15 to 20, we find David is enlisted as a, a musician, Saul's personal worship leader. Um, Saul's servants recognize his torment in verses 15 and 16 and suggest some soothing music to help. Music will make you feel better, they say. And, and, and we have to say it does, doesn't it? Music has the ability to change our mood. Uh, I had this experience just yesterday. Uh, in the afternoon, I was, you might say, tormented by Scotland's loss to France 
in the Six Nations. I don't know why I care so much. It has no eternal value. But I was grumpy. And then I went to the cinema with my seven-year-old to watch Sing 2, and I felt a lot better afterwards. <laughs> because I got so much joy out of seeing this weird animation of dancing and singing pigs <laughs> and all this stuff. And seeing the way that it lit up the face of my boy and... The music itself was put together. It really was. I'm not going to say you must all go and see it. <laughs> but it was, it was great. And I came out feeling much happier. Now, it's a silly illustration, right? But think of how much better it is to sing good truth that is actually real and meaningful and truly heartfelt. It doesn't just move your emotions. It moves your emotions because you're singing good truth that you comprehend with the greatest joy that you could ever experience, like we've just been singing. It soothes the soul. It revives the heart, resets the mind, and it fends off sinful or devilish thoughts. Sing. That was Mary Slessor's tactic. When tormented by evil thoughts. She was a Scottish missionary to Nigeria many, many, many years ago. And she was tormented at various times. And she would say, I sing doxology and dismiss the devil. It's a great way to put it. I sing doxology and dismiss the devil. Preacher John Piper said something similar. The power of praise is so strong that Satan will do his best to stop you from singing. That's how important it is to the Christian life. That's what makes me sad and almost annoyed that I didn't sing when we were barred by the government. In verses 17 to 20, David is a gifted musician. Namely, though, because the Lord was with him. That's what's emphasized. Though David's renown is certainly growing, when you look with me at verse 18, what do we know about David? Well, he plays the lyre. I guess you need to do something while you're watching sheep. Uh, it's like a harp guitar type thing. That's a really bad definition of what a lyre is, but there you go. Verse 18, he's a brave warrior, speaks well, good looking. See, people are still thinking about outward appearances. And most importantly, verse 18, the Lord is with him. That's what matters here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Now, previously, when the Spirit of God rushed on someone, what we've, ha what we've seen up to this point in the Bible is that they were either empowered to preach something, fight someone, or build something. Okay? Really, just those three things. This is the first time that the Spirit-filled task has been different. And what is it? Verses 21 to 23. Spirit-filled David serves bringing peace to those who hear his music. Now, it's amazing, actually. Saul unwittingly appoints the one whose anointing led to the departure of the Spirit of God from him. He's unsuspectingly summoned the one who was better than him and chosen by God. It's almost like God's got a plan, right? And verses 21 to 22 tell us that Saul didn't just appoint David. It actually says he liked him very much. Some translations will happily have the word love in there. Saul loved David. And he didn't just appoint him as a musician. Trust went further than that. The relationship went deeper than that. Because he, Saul made David his armor bearer too. Now armor bearer, bearers are like a, a, a senior officer's right-hand man in battle. They don't just carry around the armor and the shield and so on, but they, they stand by them in time of danger, never leaving them. And Saul is basically, by appointing him to this, he's entrusting him with his life. And David served without hesitation, not drawing his sword, but pulling out his guitar and choosing not to say, I'm going to take your place, but to sing songs for the one that he regarded highly. He, he, by his music, brought relief, as verse 23 says, relief would come to Saul 
he'd feel better. The evil spirit would leave him. Now, friends, I want us to see in all of this how David's spirit-filled ministry, again, foreshadows the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. These things are written to instruct us, yes, to think about how we should behave, how we should live, but all it's all about Jesus. And so we look to figure out, how does this take us to him? Well, his is the ministry, the spirit-filled ministry that brings an even greater peace to us than David's to Saul's. In Isaiah chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 4, we get this super strong hint, a prophecy, a foretelling that the Messiah, the coming king, would be so spirit-filled, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. This Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruits. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. It's Jesus. The Spirit rested upon him at his baptism, as I said earlier, and empowered him for the ministry that was ahead. Now, the ministry he performs brings peace. Not by singing, but by preaching. And by dying. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, he reads from the book of Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then verse 21, he said to them, as he rolled up the scroll and sat down, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He declares that he's the one who is spirit-filled. What does he do next? Immediately he went to Capernaum. And who did he meet? Another man troubled by an evil spirit. And what did he do? Though he did not sing, his spirit-filled proclamation, his spirit-filled command brought permanent relief to the tormented man. He brought relief not just by his proclamation, but of course by his death. Are we talking about inner peace here? Sure. But most importantly, peace with God. Peace with God whose hand of judgment hovers ominously over sinners like us. And by his blood and by his death, Jesus Christ pays the price that we were due to pay for the penalty of sin and frees us from that judgment. He takes it upon himself. As Colossians 1 tells us, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Therefore, Romans 5, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit-filled ministry that brings us wonderful peace. Peace beyond our greatest imaginings or best wishes through Jesus Christ, our King. Friends, do you see it in this passage and believe it? Jesus Christ is the King of God's choosing, who despite all appearances, serves in the power of the Spirit for our eternal peace. Praise God. Let's bow our heads. Please take a moment in the quietness 
just to pray your own personal prayers of response. Can I encourage you, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, use this as a time to pray and say, sorry, thank you, please. Sorry for my sins. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for them. Please help me to see Jesus for who he is and believe. And if you are a Christian, let's repent of the ways that we forget and rejoice in the peace that we have through Jesus Christ. Father, as we sing now words that help us rejoice in the truth of your word that we've just studied together, soothe our souls, revive our hearts, open our mouths that we might sing with glad hearts of the spirit-filled king who brings us peace, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.
who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said,